in the Old Testament, and we are back in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you can make your way over to 1 Samuel, um, we will be covering two chapters tonight, which is a huge stretch for me because I don't know if I've ever done two chapters. I usually do like one verse, two verses, maybe three or four verses. Um, on Thursday nights, because it's 1 Samuel, I do want to kind of cover uh, a little bit more, which is honestly, for me, it's, it, it is truly a stretch because I've never really taught like chapters at a time. Um, and so tonight, for us to be going through two chapters is huge. Um, but the storyline, the narrative, really goes along with both of these chapters. And so uh, for sure, well, for sure, I think for sure, we are going to cover these two chapters because the storyline fits perfect. If you recall from our last study a couple of weeks ago, because last week we were off for this, the nation of Israel had gone out to battle. God had just begun to really speak to the nation of Israel after all these years that God had not spoke. He had been raising up this young man, Samuel. And, and as God began to speak and to minister to the nation of Israel, no sooner does God begin to speak, but then the battles begin. And Israel goes out to, to battle. And they go out to battle against their, their nemesis, their arch enemy, their bitter foe, the Philistines. We talked a little bit about the Philistines and what kind of people they were and, and stuff like that, and where they came from. In their first goal round, as they went out to battle, if you remember, the nation of Israel was defeated. They went out in confidence for sure, but they got defeated and they lost 4,000 men. And so because of that, they decided, well, well we need to regroup. We need to, to strategize. We need to figure out what's, what's going on. And so they, they regroup and they decide, well, we need the Ark of the Covenant with us. Send somebody back to Shiloh. Go back to Shiloh where the Ark was at, at the tabernacle, and bring the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of the Lord. And it's interesting because they bring the, the Ark of the Covenant with them, and so they're assuming that the presence of the Lord is right there with them. But I find it interesting that as they go to go do this, their hearts and their, 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 their hearts are not in the right place. Do you understand that? They want the presence of the Lord. But their hearts are, aren't really there. And almost like what we were singing about just a while ago, oh, Lord, I want your presence. It's like, really, do you? Do you want the presence of the Lord? Because if you really want the presence of the Lord, then you put yourself in the presence of the Lord. But see, they brought the presence of the Lord with them, or they were assuming. But in reality, what they really wanted was a good luck charm. That's what they really wanted. Hey, God, just see us through this. Because... Once we're done, we'll probably put you back on the shelf or back in the tabernacle, but we really don't need your presence. We just got defeated. We just got jacked right now, and what we need is a victory. And so if I pull you out, and if I bring you to, my, to where we're at, then you should come through, right? You can win the battle for us. But it's interesting because they hadn't even sought the Lord before they went out. They really didn't even go into His presence beforehand. But now, 
They want him to come and come through for them. And as it turns out, the Philistines understood its presence, (laughs) the Ark of the Covenant's presence, better than the children of Israel because when they heard all the noise and all the stuff that was going on in the camp over in Ebenezer, they realized, oh, the Ark of the Covenant is there. And these guys, they understood what that meant because they remembered the stories of about 400 years earlier when God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt and how they defeated their enemies. And so they're going, woe to us. We're done. They were preparing to be defeated because of that. But what they didn't know was that the nation of Israel was in disobedience. And God was actually going to use them to teach these guys a lesson. And so it turns out that the Philistines defeated them yet again. And this time, another 3,000 foot soldiers were killed. 30,000, thank you. 30,000 foot soldiers were killed. And on top of that, they captured the Ark of the Covenant. On top of that, they also killed the sons of, of Eli. As it was prophesied beforehand that those two guys would die on the same day, and so it happened. And when the news reached Shiloh, where Eli was at, as soon as he heard about it, it says that he fell over, broke his neck, and died. Can it get any worse, you know? It's like we just lost all kinds of men. The two young priests are dead. Now the high priest is dead. What more can happen? Well, when the daughter-in-law hears of what happens to her father-in-law, to her husband, to the nation of Israel, and to the Ark of the Covenant, she goes into labor and has a boy. And right before she dies... She names him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. Now, what a sad commentary. What a sad commentary. And we ended up on that note. I mean, what a sad thing. It's like, hey, guys, God bless you guys. The glory of the Lord has departed. Go in peace. And this is where we pick up the story tonight, where it says in 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines Philistines took the ark of God. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, the head of Dagon and both his palms, the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house treaded on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. 
when it was written. Can you imagine what they must have thought? Knowing that this was the same God who had struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. The Philistines, they understood the Ark of the Covenant. They understood who God was, the God of Israel. They understood all of that. For them to be able to defeat this nation, and not only defeat the nation, but also capture their primary, their best piece of furniture where God's presence dwelt, for them to be able to capture the the God of Israel. Can you imagine? They were were like thrilled. They, they, They were a very superstitious kind of people, as most people are that are outside of Christ. They were very superstitious. And so their mindset is, we have just defeated the God of Israel. All these other nations who have fought against Israel and really haven't, well, they might have defeated them here and there, but nobody has ever captured the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine their mindset going, we have it all. Dagon, our God, is so powerful that now he is over the God of Israel. Capturing that ark was like, in a sense, capturing the mascot of the rival college. You know, you've seen the movies and stuff like that where they go and they capture. And, it, and, and, and for some reason, that mascot is their identity. You have what they identify with or what identifies them. Because if you haven't got a mascot, you haven't got anything. And so the mascot is everything to people, to these colleges and stuff. And so for them to capture the Ark of the Covenant, they have everything that they ever needed. And they bring it into the house of Dagon. And I could only imagine that the Philistines must have brought the ark of God in or, the, or carried it in to their God as they were bringing in a trophy, the victory, the spoils of war. And here they go and they set this trophy for them, the ark of God. They bring it and they, they set it before their God as, as an offering to show that their God has defeated the God of Israel. Now, I don't know how big the statue was of Dagon, but they, and I, I was telling you, the Ark of the Covenant is basically about the size of this pulpit, but laying down. And it was a sign of them bringing it in and, and setting it before their God. It was a sign of not only humiliating the nation of Israel, but also humiliating the God of Israel. But what they didn't understand is that the God of Israel was nothing like their God. Not at all. And they would soon find out that even that 
box that they had taken into captivity, there was power behind it. Not so much because of what it was made of and, and things like that, because it did. It represented the presence of the Lord. And they thought that they would humiliate the God of Israel. Dagon represented who the Philistines were. They, they had come from the sea. They had come in from the sea, the, the, the Philistines, and they were known as the sea people, the people of the sea. And so Dagon, their god, had the upper body of a human, but his lower body was that of a fish. He would be what you would call a merman. Not a mermaid, but a merman. Because that's what they identified themselves with. They were sea people. It would have looked weirder if it would have been the other way around. If the top part was a fish and the bottom legs. What would you have called that? And so this made more sense. Because their God really couldn't walk around. Even with fish or fins. So they had to carry it anyway. But turn over to, to Psalm 15 because I, I, wa I want you to see what people think of when they make these gods of theirs. Because it's interesting, they identify with their gods because it says, as, as we will read, it's like them. They make them like themselves. And so in, in, in Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4, 115, 115, beginning in verse 4. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. This God of theirs that they worshipped, they made it into the, like their own image. They created this God. They gave Him a name. They, 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 they gave him the eyes, the hands, the head. They gave him everything, but he could not do anything for them in that sense. Because we read in verses 3 to, to 5 that, that this incident takes place where they bring the spoils of war into their temple. And it's interesting, and, and I think this is probably one of the funniest stories to me in all of the Bible. Because here they are bringing the presence of God, the ark of God, into their God. And it's an attempt to humiliate the God of Israel. The God of Israel even makes inanimate objects bow down before Him. It's not like all of a sudden He came to life and He had to bow down. However it happened during the night, the Ark of the Covenant is sitting right there and this merman falls down. And so can you imagine what they thought when they walked in in the morning 
Maybe they were coming back to finish or to continue their celebration. And to their dismay, instead, their God, their merman is on the ground like a fish out of water. (laughs) And here they have to go and pick him back up. They have to pick him back up and put him back in his place. Now, if you worship a God that you have to help, do anything. What kind of God do you serve? Honestly. What kind of God do you serve if you have to pick Him up and, because He can't help Himself? He truly can't. He looks powerful. He looks weird, different. They've come to, into His presence I don't know how many times and they've given them themselves over to this guy, but He cannot do anything. And when He falls down, they have to pick Him up. They have to put him back in his place. And can you imagine? It's like everybody putting him in his place and then worshiping this thing. Bless you. If your God cannot help himself, he is not much of a God. And I think oftentimes people, even though they will say they don't worship idols, Man, we bow down to a lot of things that cannot even help themselves. And they kind of rule over us. We let them rule over us. But we have to do everything for it. It cannot do anything on its own. And can you imagine as they place him back on, they place their God, their merman back on his pedestal, whatever he's sitting on, or whatever, I don't know how he's, he has fins. But can you imagine the next morning? They come in again, and the same thing. He's, you know, it's like they look, he's gone. But, oh, wow, he's there on the ground. But this time his head is off, and the palms, his hands are off. And if you ever, if, if, if you Google Dagon, you, you would see that his hands are out like this. And so, I don't know how it didn't break the first time, but be that as it may, it fell, and it broke his hands, and it broke his head. Took it completely off. There was no way that this God could know how the Philistines could get out of this. Because, again, he had no head now. It was worthless. He had no hands to help them through their situation. He was just a torso there. And they were so bummed out that it says that they didn't even go back in there anymore. They didn't go through to, to the threshold any longer to this day, to whatever day it was written. It's like, I don't know if they came to the conclusion. It's like, we have to keep on helping our God. And He hasn't helped us in this. He keeps on falling down. Oftentimes when people look to other things, to be their God, they are the ones that have to do the thinking and do the work for their God. And the God of Israel is the one that gives wisdom. He is the God that that leads His people by the hand. In other words, He knows what's best. He is a God that you cannot counsel. You cannot tell Him what to do. He knows it all. He doesn't fall over and, and get an owie and all of a sudden he can't help himself. It's like, oh, geez, now we've got to go help God. 
the God of the universe. It's like, no, he doesn't. He, he is totally in control. He knows everything from beginning to end. That's how powerful he is. He, he, he is the one that, that goes before his people. He leads. He is also the God who comes behind his people and props them up and encourages them. He is the one that carries his people through, whereas Dagon had no clue what he could do because he's that inanimate object. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't do anything. You know, as I was thinking about what God does, you know, he's the one that does everything. He's the one that helps. He's the one that knows and, and stuff. It reminded me of the... That, that poem, The Footprints in the Sand, you know, it's like, oh, it's, so, it's, it's really a lovely thing, you know, it's like, oh, there's two footprints, and hey, where, where, where were you, God, when there was only one? And he said, oh, no, that's, that's what I was, when I was carrying you, because he is able to carry. And then there's that one part that's it's not in all of them, but it's where that big old groove is at. You know what that big old groove is at, right? What that groove is all about. That, that's, that's where he says, that's where I dragged you kick, kick, kicking and screaming. <laughs> because he can do that too. <laughs> He's the one that leads us and guides us and pulls us along if he has to. Because that's our God, man. He is everything. But as we go into verse 6, he says, Now, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark... Of God, of, of the God of Israel, be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God, of the God of Israel, away. So it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark. Of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God, of the God of Israel, to kill uh, to us, to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Phil- Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God, of the God of Israel, and let it go back to its place so that it does not kill us and our people for there was deadly destruction throughout all the city and the hand of God was very heavy on them and the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven it's a box it's, it's a box made of acacia wood that's overlined with, with, with gold and stuff. And it has a lid with these two cherubims that are kind of facing each other. The wings are and stuff like that. But it represents the, 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 the presence of God. And this box is wreaking havoc 
on these people. And they defeated the Israelites. They had victory. And it's almost like they don't want to claim defeat because this box is jacking them up. That they're saying, man, let's just send it away. Let's just, let's, let's just move it on. And I like the fact that it said, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And I think the pun was intended because their God didn't have a hand anymore. <laughs> and it is my opinion that God does have a heavy hand on peoples and nations. I believe that God does have a heavy hand on, on situations around the world even to this day. And I know that's not politically correct because if something devastating happens and somebody says, I think God's punishing that nation, it's like, oh man, how can you say that? But I truly believe that. I truly believe that God does have a heavy hand on, on, on nations. And I truly believe that God lifts His hand as well to bring judgment on people. I truly believe that. We, we look at what happens here as we've been studying on Sunday morning. We saw that God brought judgment on the children of Israel. He took his hand off. On, on, on Sodom and Gomorrah, he put his hand heavy upon them and he destroyed them. And I don't think he, he's like, oh, it's a New Testament. I better, I better not do it anymore. No, he is still God. And he still has the power to have a heavy hand on peoples and nations if he wants to. Because he, he makes things happen and he allows things to happen. Now, I don't totally understand how or where, why or when he does that. Sometimes I, it, it boggles my mind, but sometimes I think, Lord, you should have a heavy hand on those people over there. You know, with what's going on with, with these groups that are just ravaging the people, it's like, Lord, can you just have a heavy hand on those cats? Just destroy all of them. Right where they sit. And yet last week when we had some missionaries here, it's like, yeah, we should be praying for them. I know. I understand that. But it says that he ravaged them and struck them with tumors. Now this is an interesting saying or statement in that some translations say that this saying, it goes more like this, and rats appeared in their land, and death and destruction were throughout the cities. And some, they look at this verse in verse 6, and they, and they attribute it to something like the bubonic plague that, that came upon the people. And that all of a sudden, because of this plague that came upon them, all these tumors came out on the people because of it. And it is quite possible. Now, the word ravaged means to stun, devastate, stupefy, amaze, and astonish. But it also has the word destroyed attached to it as well. And so when it says that he ravaged them, it could mean that he destroyed them. But he astonished them. He devastated them. And all of that can happen with the plagues like the bubonic plague. People are astonished how, how rapidly it goes and, and all of a sudden people are dying. Now the word tumor in the Hebrew is the word ophel. And it means a hill, a mound, a fort, a stronghold, a tumor, 
a hemorrhoid. Honestly, a hemorrhoid. That's from the Brown, Diver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon. That's where I get that from. The new key, or the King James, the old King James, uses the word emrods, which is the same Hebrew word for tumor. Now, looking at the story, when he starts saying that these tumors break out, and all of a sudden these people are being devastated, ravaged, stupefied by all these tumors. It looked like the people of Ashdod were not going to take this sitting down. They were itching to get rid of the ark because it had become a pain in the neck of the people. And all of a sudden, they were looking for temporary or permanent relief for this situation. And in their quest, and in their quest to not be defeated or announce defeat, they came up with a solution. Let's spread the spoils. Let's, let's take this thing on the circuit. Let's get it out of here, but let's send it to our other city, Gath. See what happens over there. And it gets over there and the same thing happens to them. You see, in Ashdod, it was a big city. They had the temple of, 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 of Dagon there. And I'm sure they had smaller temples in, in Gad and, or Gath and, and in other places. But they send it over there and all of a sudden, it's like, these people are kind of devastated too. And they were not going to sit around <laughs> with this thing in their city as well. And so they're going, well, wait a minute. We need to get rid of this. We need some relief as well. Let's take it over to Akron. Now, the Akronites, they probably heard what had been going on in these other places. And they're going, well, <laughs> ain't coming here. We do not want that thing here. Everywhere it went, the results were the same. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. You know, they were trying to humiliate the God of Israel. And in the process, God was humiliating them instead. There was no amount of preparation H that was going to or could give them relief for their pain. No, it says that the cry, their cry, the cry of the city went all the way up to heaven. That's how painful it was for them. And Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God doesn't play around. I mean, it might sound funny. I mean, to me, it was hilarious. Like I said, I look at this story and I laugh. I'm thinking, God, you do have a sense of humor. Now, it could be that it was the bubonic plague. Possibly. But everything I looked at is like, no, you made them suffer, Lord. 
Because they wanted to, to, to humiliate you and they wanted to humiliate your people and you were going to have none of it. And I just look at things like that and it's like, you know, God is able, isn't He? God is able when, when people come against you as a Christian. Now, you, you shouldn't be praying hemorrhoids on them or anything like that. But He is able to take care of them the way He sees fit. And for some reason, He saw fit to bring His hand heavy upon the Philistines in this situation. Now, it didn't happen like that all the time, but in this situation it did. And I'm thinking, why? Because they brought the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, into their temple, and they tried to humiliate Him, and He humiliated their God, and humiliated their bodies. Because He will have none of that. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, if you're not a Christian. <laughs> if you're not a believer. The hand of the Lord could be heavy upon your life. Now in chapter 6, it says in verse 1, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Ow. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it away or send it to its place. So they said, if you send it away, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why the hand was not removed from you. His hand was not removed from you. Then they said, What is a trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and, all, and on the lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors, and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When, when he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked. Hitch and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him, as a trespass offering in the chest by, the, by its side and send it away and let it go and watch. If it goes up the road on its ter own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he, shall, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it was not, or it is not the, his hand that struck us, struck us, it happened to us by chance. For seven months, 
the Philistines could not sit still. And God wasn't going to let them sit still. He was going to let them squirm and be uncomfortable for a time. And they called their priests and their diviners to see if they can make this disappear, vanish, at the very least, shrink. You see, the Philistines still didn't want to lose or be defeated or, or accept defeat. And what they wanted from these guys is like, what can we do to where we're not defeated per se, but this thing just kind of goes away, goes on its own. What can we do? Now they understood enough that they needed an offering, a trespass offering. And perhaps their God, in their trespass offerings, he demanded gold. Again, he can't think or speak or say anything, but somehow that God wanted some gold. Hmm. But their trespass offering, whatever it was, required some kind of precious metal. But they didn't understand enough that the God of Israel, even though he did require a recompense or a restitution for a trespass offering, he also required blood. You see, in Leviticus 5, 15 and 16, it says, if a person commits a trespass, a sin unintentionally in regards to the holy thing of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flock. With your valuation of shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary as a trespass offering, and he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regards to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. You see, there was, there was blood that would be required. But the priests and these diviners didn't understand that part, but they knew enough. It's like, don't send it away empty. Send something with it. And so they come up with this idea that they should make images of their tumors. Now, I can understand the rats. But now they have to make images of their tumors. I'm thinking, that would be kind of interesting if, in fact, they are hemorrhoids. <laughs> because, again, it's like, what? This is what you require? No, this is not what God requires. This is what they require. This is what their God, this is what they're thinking, their religion would say. Stuff like that. Now, I've seen some pretty ugly decorations or, or, or jewelry, but this would just be gross all the way around. But it's interesting that they come up with using the cows, and that was pretty amazing. Because they would see if God, the God of Israel, was truly involved or not with this situation. Now again, they are not wanting to admit defeat. And in regards to this new cart, 
they probably had enough respect not to send it in some little jalopy, you know, of a, of a cart. Maybe they just didn't want it to break down in their territory. It's like, no, we will do the best and send it out of here so at least it makes it to the other side of the border and then they can deal with it. It would be a small price to pay to make a new cart and even losing the gold in these images that they made. They were willing to give away this gold as long as they were healed. But taking the two milk cows which had never been yoked, and normally cows, milk cows aren't yoked to go do work. They produce milk. And then hitching them to a cart, again, it, it, it just wouldn't have been normal or natural for these cows to be yoked like that, to be hitched like that, to, to do some kind of a pulling like that. It just wouldn't have been natural. And on top of that, they still had calves to feed. And in all of this, they would see the hand of God at work. The God of Israel was not going to leave it to chance. He was still in charge. And he wanted them to know it. And there was no way that the Philistines would not know this, whether they admitted it or not. But God was going to be in on this. You see, when it says in verse 10 through 12, it says, Then the men did so. They took the two cows, the two milk cows, and hitched them to the cart and shut up the, the, the cow or the calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. The fact that they were lowing, were, it was proof that these cows really wanted to be with their calves. They, they, I'm sure they had already produced more milk and they had to get rid of the milk, but they weren't turning aside. They weren't meandering in any way. They were going straight for the, on this road and they were like in awe because they didn't graze, they didn't turn, they didn't go to the right or to the left. This was the hand of God upon these animals because instinct would have told them, hey, go back, go look for your calves. But instead, they were obeying their creator instead. They were going to fulfill the plan of God even against their instincts. And so in verse 13 to the end of the chapter, it says, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their harvest, uh, their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and they saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemeth and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the, the Lord and the chest that was with it in which were the articles of gold and put them on a large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt 
offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron that same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua and Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the holy God of the holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So the so they sent messengers to the inhabitants, inhabitants of Kirhethjerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up with you. For seven months. For seven long months, the children of Israel felt that the glory of the Lord had departed. And now it seems that he was returning. The, the presence was now returning. And there was rejoicing, but why shouldn't there be rejoicing? The ark was back. But it would all be short-lived because in verse 19, tragedy strikes. And it strikes because there was disobedience among the people. Now, one might think, well, maybe they were just looking inside to see if the law of Moses was still inside. But it wasn't for them to open. All the Levites were there, but it seemed like the men just decided to go and open up. Now, if you've noticed through these two chapters, the Ark of the Covenant is never referred to as the Ark of the Covenant in these two chapters. It's referred to as the Ark of the, the Lord or the Ark of God throughout but it is still the ark of the covenant there was a covenant that was associated with this ark oh the presence of the lord was there but there was a covenant and the nation of israel and the children of israel were not keeping the covenant of god they were excited to see it come back but it's almost like their hearts were still far away from from god the presence was coming, but they still were going to disobey. They weren't going to go by protocol the way it was supposed to be treated. They had not been keeping the ark of, or the covenant of God. And this ark, they had used it as a thing, an idol of sorts, a good luck charm. And what they should have done, especially since the Levites weren't there, they should have gotten something and covered it until the priests got there to carry it. See, they really shouldn't never touch it. The way it was set up as it was laid out, it had some rings and there was poles that was always attached to it. And I'm imagining it still had those poles attached to it. 
And it should have been always carried by the poles and they was, it should never be touched. They weren't supposed to touch it. And here they go and they open the lid. And it says that 50,070 died. Now some say that it was more like 70 instead of 50,070. That there was at least 50,000 men there. But be that as it may, judgment came upon them because they did something that they weren't supposed to do. They opened the lid. Now the lid was also known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat, that word in the Greek is translated propitiation. And it is associated with the word atonement. And atonement has to do with blood. And propitiation has to do with the appeasement the demand that demands or the to appease the demand required by God. That's what propitiation meant. This to, to get to the mercy seat. You shouldn't even touch it. You had to sprinkle blood on it. And then you receive the mercy. But you see, these guys, they had first of all came, they, they came there with unclean hands, and second of all, they didn't have any blood. So they got what they got, and that was judgment. They got judgment from the law because they were not keeping the covenant of the law. They went about it the whole, all, all wrong. They should have covered it and carried it away, but they didn't do that. And the question is asked in, in verse 20, who is able to stand before the holy God? And Psalm 24 tells us and gives us the answer. In Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5, it says, Who may ascend into his, the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to an idol, nor swore deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see, God is God over all. Whether with believers or unbelievers, God is God over all. He is able to get anybody's attention. Anybody's. Believer or non-believer. Philistine or not a Philistine. Uh, the, the children of Israel or the Philistines. The Philistines could have forsaken their God when all this happened in their temple, but they didn't turn. They had every opportunity to, to understand, man, this God is so powerful that He brings judgment. His hand is heavy upon us. And even as these cows were going back, they were seeing God's hand was, was heavy upon us and they could have repented, but they didn't. And judgment had come upon them. And even with the believer, the, the children of Israel, judgment came upon them. The people of Bethshemesh should have come to the mercy seat with the priest and with blood, but they did their own thing and judgment came upon them because they decided to do it their way and not God's way. And I am so glad, guys, that we are living in a time where the judgment has been paid. And we have every opportunity, day in and day out, to turn from our sin and to the living God. 
and find mercy and grace with God. But do not be mocked. <laughs> God does not play around, guys. He really doesn't. Oh, he, he loves us. We're, we're his kids, man. We, we get to mess around. We get to do all kinds of stuff, but we are his kids. And we have mercy and grace galore upon us. But don't mock who God is. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. To the believer and to the non-believer alike, whether they realize it or not. Because he is able, he is truly able to bring judgment upon the righteous and even the non-righteous because of how the judgment will begin at the house of the Lord, the Bible says. He will deal with his people. And we see it once again, he does that. But he will go after those who try to humiliate him. And granted, even today, there's people that humiliate our God. And while they have breath, they have every opportunity to repent. And if they repent, God is gracious enough to forgive. He truly is. But if they do not repent, they will suffer the consequences. Because that's who God is. <laughs> he's not afraid of judgment. It's not his handiwork, but he's not afraid. He'd rather pour out mercy and grace and love. He extends it generously. But he will judge when he has to. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and praise you once again, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that even through this story, Lord God, you show your hand heavy, 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 heavy upon people who come against you, Lord. And when people decide to do their own thing, Lord God, and not follow what you desire, what your requirements are, you're not afraid, Lord, to bring judgment upon them as well. Lord, I pray that us, most of us here are believers, Lord, but if there's anybody who is not a believer, Lord, tonight, I pray, God, that they would understand the judgment that can come upon them, Lord, if they do not repent. Lord, we're living in a time where judgment has already been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so I do. I, I, I want to give that opportunity to you right now. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I know most of you, but I don't know where your hearts are at. These, these people from from Bashemesh, were, 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 were glad to see the presence of the Lord, but their hearts were far away. And I want to pray for you right now. If that's you, I, I, I just want to pray for you. Is there anybody here? Just lift up your hand to say, pray for me, man. I, I'm here. I'm in His presence. I feel like I'm in His presence, but my heart is far away. Is there anybody that I can pray for tonight? Father, I do pray, God, that you would just con continue to strengthen my brothers and sisters. And Lord, their desire would be to be close to you, to, to be in your presence, to not be a far away ever, Lord God. That, Lord, when they do sin, when they do their own thing, Lord God, that they would quickly and truly turn back to you, Lord, so that they can be healed and touched and blessed. Lord, go with us tonight, Lord. Continue to strengthen us, Lord. Remind us, Lord, of these stories, Lord God, that you've given us through your word that happened <laughs> that we can apply today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing this last song.